The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. This morning, we're going to do uh, go back to the Old Testament for our message. I like the Old Testament, and we hear so much of the New Testament. Todd goes through lots of parts of the New Testament, so I always think it's nice to take a break and go to the Old Testament. So we're going to be going to Psalm 23 this morning. I'm going to be giving you a little bit of background here, first of all, however. And if you were here when I preached on Psalm 1, you will maybe remember some of this stuff, but review is always good, they say. You need to at least go over things three times to get it embedded in your head. Today, uh, we're going to take a look again at Psalms. Psalms was Israel's worship book or song book, the prayer book. Psalms is one of two Old Testament books most frequently quoted in the New Testament. I, the other one would be Isaiah. Jesus quoted Psalm 110, verse 1 in Mark 12, 36. He quoted Psalm 82, 6 in John 10, 35. Psalm 41, 9 in John 13, 18. Psalms point to Christ. When Christ was on the road to the Emmaus after his resurrection... And he was talking to a couple of disciples there who just didn't, couldn't understand what all had happened. He says in Luke 24, 44, says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Various authors are involved in writing the Psalms. David wrote over 50% of them. Solomon the sons of Korah, Asaph, and some others. There's different types of psalms as well. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of lament and wisdom and messianic psalms, those that point directly to Christ. The book of Psalms helps teach us to learn to be worshipers, men and women who, like David, seek after God. John Calvin tells us, that he had been accustomed to call the Psalms the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as any mirror. Of all the books of the Bible, Psalms is one of the most well-known because it speaks to many of our human problems. Psalms are, are true to our Christian experience. One of my former pastors at one time, recommended that instead of taking sleeping pills to sleep, we would do better taking a dose of the Psalms. And uh, quite often that's true. If you get up, you can't sleep at night, take your Bible, read through the Psalms, um, other parts as well, but Psalms are, are really good for that. Psalms should be part of our daily lives. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So then psalms are a pattern for worship. Singing of psalms has been an important part of worship through the centuries. Psalms are a combination of, ins of instruction or law and poetry. Instruction many times through history has been taught in song. And if you remember going back to your childhood, all those little songs you used to sing, I don't know in Sunday schools if they sing a lot of those uh, 
older songs, but they taught doctrine. They taught scripture. A lot of songs, as I grew up, that was one of the things they taught. They teach and affirm doctrine. For example, for example, the eternality of God can be seen in Psalm 90, 1 through 4. The omniscience of God in Psalm 139, 1 through 4. The omnipresence of God in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. And God is creator. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. And many of the doctrines pertaining to our scriptures can be found in Psalm 119. About all those long, that long psalm is primarily about the word of God. And Calvin asserts that the Psalms will also train believers in earnest prayer. Psalm 42 is an example of that. And you can pray the Psalms, and I recommend it. You can pray almost any part of Scripture, but Psalms is especially conducive to prayer. And Psalms are also meant not to just to inform us. I believe the 23rd Psalm is one of the most well-known Psalms. When people are looking for solace and comfort, they will often go to Psalm 23. However, I'd like to posit to you that it is more than a Hallmark card. Um, Psalm 23 is used a lot in Hallmark cards, other cards, um, and it's really more than that. As we begin to look at Psalm 23 here, Psalm 23 is part of a trilogy. It's Psalm 22, 23, and 24. They go together as uh, Messianic Psalms. They manifest Christ. They point to him. In Psalm 22, you see him as the good shepherd. John 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in Psalm 22, you'll see verses that pertain to his crucifixion. In Psalm 23, he is known as the great shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And then in Psalm 24, he is seen as the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And if you notice Psalm 24, it's all about that king of glory. A commentator has said that in Psalm 22, we see the cross. In Psalm 23, the shepherd's crook. And in Psalm 24, the crown. In Psalm 22, Christ is the Savior. Psalm 23, he is the satisfier. And in Psalm 24, he is the sovereign. And in Psalm 22, you see the past. Psalm 23, the present. And Psalm 24, the future. So let's read Psalm 23. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. uh, But you're welcome to turn to your Bible and follow along. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
So we get a good background if we want to. Uh, I think it's important to get background to uh, to Psalm 23 here, and I'd like to do that by going to First Samuel chapter 17. If you want to turn there, First Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 to 37. And David is here talking to Saul, King Saul. This was as he's getting ready to do battle against Goliath. And Saul is saying, David, you can't go against this Philistine. But David responds and says to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him. And delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This is the shepherd boy that wrote Psalm 23. He was very familiar with what the job of a shepherd was. Um, Even though he now was king, he wrote this later in his life, even though now he was a king, he never really forgot what it was like to be a shepherd boy. And I would like to spend then this morning a few few minutes meditating on Psalm 23. This is something that you can do on yourself as well, daily basis. Um, we're called upon to meditate on the Psalms, so I kind, I kind of thought, well, I would do like uh, follow kind of a meditation of Psalm 23, what you do when you meditate. And one of those things is you take a look at the words. Now, it begins with the word the. Now, what kind of word is that? A minor little word. It's a fluff. It's a filler word, right? We don't think too much of the word the. But the is a very important word. It's a definite article modifying a noun. See, you need to know English. goes back to your school days. It signifies uniqueness. There is no one but him, it is saying. When it says the Lord... It does not say a Lord. It does not say one of or some other word. It says a definite the, the Lord. The Lord then is the master, sovereign, savior, creator, sustainer, ruler of all. So he is the one and only. There is no one beside him. He is the Lord. And then you look at that little word is, another Kind of insignificant word, possibly. But you look at it, and it's the present tense. It's now. It's current. It does not say was, past tense, or will be in the future. It's now. The Lord is. My, another one, personal, very personal word. Signifies a personal relationship, possession, belonging to or or you belonging to the person. It doesn't say our, it doesn't say your. David was very personal here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And shepherd, of course, is a caregiver, protector, provider. David knew all about that, as we just read. But the interesting thing is, if you look at that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, 
If the Lord is your shepherd, you're acknowledging you're a sheep. Sheep are dumb, clueless animals. For every, from everything I've read, they're weak, dumb, dumb, helpless. Uh, they, uh, they have, they're just dumb. And uh, <laughs> it's the only thing I can think of. They're just dumb. And David was classifying himself, even though he was king, even though he was the most powerful man in Israel, he was saying, I'm a sheep in looking at his relationship with his God, with his Lord. So Isaiah 40, 11 takes that a little bit further. It says, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And in Ezekiel 34, that's another interesting passage. This is a passage where God is talking to the people of Israel again. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So those are all things that we see about a shepherd. The sheep, you notice, don't go looking for a shepherd. The shepherd seeks the flock. God seeks out his people. So we see here then that this psalm, if we really look at it, is primarily for believers. So often it's read in funerals and so on, and I suppose maybe it does give some comfort to people, but the only people who can really get comfort from this psalm are believers because we're his sheep. So an unbeliever cannot say that the Lord God is their shepherd. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 10. And John chapter 10 is an interesting passage because it could almost be a kind of a go right along with Psalm 23. John chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So the sheep and the shepherd had a very personal relationship. Then it goes on to say here that it says, I shall not want. Psalm 34.10 says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And if we look at the word shall, again, another interesting word. Shall is a, is a word that note, denotes both a present and a future. And we also notice from this statement here, shall not want, that this statement is definite. It's not ambiguous. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say possibly. It says, I shall not want or lack any good thing. And God's examples or examples of God's providential provision abound. And the people of Israel would know this from their history. If you look if they looked back at all to the wilderness, 
They would see that God provided for them water out of a rock, manna in the wilderness, uh, quail to be fed. Those are all from the hand of God. They didn't raise the quail. They didn't uh, do anything to provide the manna. Those were all things that God gave them out of his grace. Elijah, the prophet Elijah in time of famine in 1 Kings 17 verse 6 was fed by ravens. Elijah in the wilderness, 1 Kings 19.6, fed cakes and water, was fed cakes and water. Then there was the prophet's widow in 2 Kings 4, verse 6, where Elisha and the widow of Zarephath and her son, their oil did not run out. She was told to bake a cake for Elisha. And, uh, well, she was saying, well, that's all I have. And gather all the jugs you can and... They started pouring oil and it didn't run out until the famine was over. Then we have in the New Testament the feeding of the multitudes in Matthew 14, 20. There was 12 baskets left over from, from that uh, feast. And then finally to the saints, which includes us in Philippians 4:19, we have the promise, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, he says that he provides everything pertaining to life and godliness. And Matthew, finally, in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, in that famous Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember the passage where that Jesus tells us not to be anxious, not to worry, not to fear. So God provides. God provides for his, for his people. In verse 2, it says... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep left to themselves would lack everything. They would just die because they wouldn't know how to find food. They wouldn't know how to find water. Um, All this thing the shepherd did for them. They were very helpless and vulnerable. So we have here then a picture of rest and contentment. Exodus 33 verse 14, God told Moses... My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So in this green pastures, there's lush food for the sheep. There's plenty. They don't have any want. And for our lives, the word of God should be like that. That should be our lush green pasture. We should feast on that word every day. And the still waters. The sheep could not drink from fast-flowing streams. They would panic. They'd get scared. Um, So the shepherd would always have to see to it that they came to a place where the waters were either gently flowing or maybe at still. And so this was what Christ also does for us. You know, he's the living water found again in him and his word. So we can see in these verses that security of the believer rests upon the shepherd. Our security, our our contentment will rest upon the shepherd. The shepherd Christ will always supply what is necessary for our material and spiritual well-being. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Restoring your soul there refers to giving new life. It could be an invigoration of a person who's maybe had a bad day or whatever. You read the scriptures and you can be reinvigorated. He restores our soul. 
He accomplishes this, this then through the word of God. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you look at the King James, it says converting the soul. The, the word is also used to convert people, to convert our soul. So that's part of the restoration process as well. And if he leads us in the paths of righteousness, it's also implying then that we're following because he's the leader. We're following behind him. Then it says, he, well, he instructs us by the word. Uh, we can see that in 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction or training in righteousness. And he also directs us by conscience and providence. Providence being God's governing of what things happen in our lives. By what people he brings into our lives. As I look back over, over my life, I can see, you, you can't quite often see it when you're going through things, but when you get to the other side, you look back, and you can see how God worked in your life to bring you all along. Our, my spiritual growth has depended a lot on things that I've been through. Jobs I left where I didn't, I, I did it, I really basically took a step on faith because I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I decided I was going to sell life insurance based on the encouragement of my wife. It turned out, it didn't turn out too well. Um, but all those things came to points in our life where then we had to make a decision to go another direction. And all those directions, God, if you look at the underside of something, it looks a mess. But if you look at the top side of something that God has been working on, you get a beautiful picture. And that's what God does in our lives. He brings people into our lives to influence us and to encourage us. And to, um, I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't gone through all those things. It's amazing how God works all these things together for our good. We may think they're not so good at the time, but God works them all together for his good and for our good. John 10, verses 25 to 27 See, this is another one where John 10, Jesus talks a lot about being a shepherd in John 10. John 10, 25 to 27 says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we follow Christ because we know him. We can't follow him if we don't know him. And so the knowing of him is very important. And that's why God works in our lives to draw us to himself so that we could be saved. Psalm 119.35, David says, David asked God to lead him in the paths of his commandments. Again, his word. In Psalm 119.105, David says that the Lord's lamp, that God's, lamp, God's word is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. Jeremiah 6.16 says, The Lord says, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient or old paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Many today would trash the old way. It's old-fashioned. The Bible's old-fashioned. Our culture is different today, so we need something different. The Bible's no longer valid, except in points that we want it to be. But that is not the way the psalmist saw it. And also in Isaiah 48:11, talking about leading us in paths of righteousness, 
It says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see that in the last part of this verse, it says he does this for his name's sake. It's not for necessarily our benefit or our good. It's for his ultimate glory. And the name of the Lord is not distinct from him. It's, a t- it's not a title or a description. His name is associated or is, manif- is a manifestation of himself and his character. And this is what he says about himself. We go to Exodus 34. This is way back. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. There you have that again. The Lord, the Lord. A God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's basically a presentation of the gospel right there. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. This is the Lord. This is the Lord that David was referring to here in Psalm 23. Then we have verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This can be a picture of our life here on earth, walking through this valley. Because basically this is what some, somebody has called it, the veil of tears, our life here on the earth. But it shows a progression. It's a going through. You're not stopping. You're not sitting still. It's a walk through. And the interesting thing about this also is that the shepherd didn't go around this valley. Even though we have troubles and trials, sometimes we think that God ought to make it so we can go around them. We don't have to deal with them. But here it says he goes with us through them. He didn't go around it or avoid it. He let his flock through it, even though it was a potentially dangerous place. It was a place where in those days, of those valleys, wild animals would lay in wait to get a sheep. To get a straggler, maybe. But like like the shepherd back then, it says he went through this place with them, even maybe holding some of the lambs in his bosom, as we read in that earlier scripture. So God, or Christ, does this for us as well. He goes with us through the hard and difficult times. We do not need to fear because he is with us and walks beside us and goes before us. The word shadow is important. Another important word, because a shadow really has no power. A shadow is just a shadow. It also implies the presence of light. There can be no shadow if there is no light. And John 8:12 says that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ, again, is that light. Also, it says, I will fear no evil. Which basically means you have a choice in the matter. You can decide to fear if you want. But it says here, I will fear no evil. He makes a definite statement that he's not going to fear. Why? Because he's trusting in the shepherd. He's trusting in his God. 
God's word then is used for these same same things. It says his rod and staff, they comfort me. God's word is that rod and staff in our lives. Rod was used as a as a protection or defense, and a staff was used for direction, guidance, or correction. So God uses his word in our lives for the same type of thing. It's a guide and directs us in paths of righteousness. It also is a, is a, uh, is a staff to guide and direct. Ephesians six seventeen says, And take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's our offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, there's reference to being a guide. Psalm 119, 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119, 11. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So your, the word is a defense against sin and against temptation in our lives. So these instruments, it says, provided comfort for the sheep. It was evidence that they were protected from outside attackers as well as from their own foolish wanderings. And the word does the same thing for us. Then in verse 5, It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Some commentators think there's a break here and it goes from talking about the Lord being a shepherd to the Lord being a host. David was a king and so he would have been uh, familiar with both of these. I kind of like to think it as a continuation of his being a shepherd. The shepherd would find those places where a sheep could have lots of lush grass and lay down in perfect peace and comfort, even though, yes, there might still be enemies around because there was always hawks flying overhead. There was always probably on the outskirts animals wanting to uh, find a straggler or whatever. But it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That anointing, in those days, you anointed guests, special guests, uh, got anointed with oil as part of their uh, hospitality, you might say. So here, um, he's, it's referring to, again, God's goodness and blessing upon our lives. It says, my cup overflows with abundant blessings. God isn't stingy. He is gracious and generous. And then in verse 6, We find God's grace and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This implies that his grace and mercy also will pursue you. When it says it will follow you, it's almost like it will pursue you. It will follow hard after you. Um, It's almost like you won't be able to get away from it. You won't be able to get away from God's desire to bless you and to take care of you. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever refers to a tabernacle, not necessarily heaven. I used to think that this was talking about heaven. But from commentators I've read and so on, it doesn't appear to be so. It says that this implies a lifetime of worship and fellowship with God and anticipates the time when Christ, the anointed one, returns to his temple in Jerusalem. And in a way, it's also, if you look at it, 
is talking about God's preser preserving power in our lives. It's the preservation of the saints. It's one of those doctrines of grace that we have, that we love so much. In the beginning, you have kind of the election, God choosing his sheep. And here you have said what he chooses, he will keep. He will keep you for the rest of your life. So, and in Psalm 24, it kind of takes up, kind of follows this when it says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because this king of glory in Psalm 24 is coming back. And it talks about that return of that king of glory. So how then do we respond to the psalm? First of all, I would suggest that you want to make sure that he is your shepherd, that you are part of his flock. And that being said then, do you then demonstrate total trust in the Lord to provide all your material and spiritual needs? This is an area of, uh, in my life that I need to work on constantly. It's one of those things you kind of fear sometimes and worry about. But again, we're called upon not to do that uh, because he is our shepherd. And lastly, do you seek God's guidance and direction through his word to lead you in the right paths? Very important. Again, to go to his word. And so to close here this morning, I'm just going to read again Psalm 23 and just let it soak into your mind and your heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Um, you're going to be dismissed now. There's, uh, there's uh, refreshments in the side room. And I would like to uh, close with a benediction. It's one we've read in Ephesians chapter 3. And I guess my Bible doesn't fall open to it like it should, does it? As much time as we spend in Ephesians. But anyway, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.